As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Paranormal Concept Show on the PAUK Network. I'm Paul Rook and you are li- yeah, you, you're listening to, obviously, us. Um, yeah, today we are joined, as always, by Kerry Greenway and Richard Clements. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. How Hello. Are you? Yeah, not too bad. Been up too much? Go and check out the start of next week's show. <laughs> Checking out the chocolate supplies, that's about it, really. Oh, at least you've got chocolate supplies. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all know about carrying her chocolate su- oh, supplies. Yeah, keeping Cadbury's in, <laughs> in business, that woman. Honestly, things would have gone badly wrong if I couldn't get hold of chocolate supplies, I'm telling you now. Yeah, you'll get very hangry, won't you? <laughs> very, very hangry. Yeah. And people won't like her when she's hangry. No, <laughs> no. Trust me, <laughs> we know. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. Well, seeing as seeing as there's not much to report, let, let's crack on with the subject we, we're talking about this week. Um, we we are delving back into the 18th century, and we're going to be discussing smugglers. Yeah, mm. smugglers. This comes yeah. off the back of uh, this triggered off of back of last week's show with John Fraser. Um, we were talking poltergeist last week, but he ended on a uh, on a good old ghost story, didn't he? Of a place he'd investigated up in Scotland. Yeah. Um, to do with um, the traditional image of a good old smuggler. So it, it led us down a, a little rabbit hole of smuggling 
Um, and, you know, because we'd also talked about this before regarding some of the myths and legends and folklores regarding smugglers. So we thought this mm. would be quite a nice little topic to bring to you um, on lockdown. <laughs> As you do. Whilst you're getting your contraband chocolate in, Karen. Yeah, yeah. that's it, yeah. Yeah, my contraband chocolate in, yeah, this is, this is true fact. <laughs> and, and, you know, I've been practising the smuggling as well because I've smuggled the pillows from the bedroom to the front room. Always ah, worth it. yeah. Always worth Just to make myself feel uncomfortable. So yeah, I've been smuggling this week. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone's moving rooms around now, isn't it? It's like, yeah, you know, just it. to get a different perspective on the subject. <laughs> Same room, different furniture. It's fine. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> oh, now smuggling is the illegal trading goods that we know about this in modern times, don't we? Mainly with the drug trade, you know, yeah. um, these days. But back in the 18th century. It was kind of known as the golden age of smuggling. Um, it's it's one of those times of history that's very romanticised. Um, you have a very romanticised view of it, don't we? Well, yes. Yeah, I mean, it sort of brings up the sort of images. Was it Catherine Cookson and sort of uh, Cornwall and all oh, Devon Coast? Yeah, it sort of definitely brings back the lantern-carrying sort of man standing on the cliffs. That's got to be right, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I, I think, you know, with, with smuggling, it was almost a case of, you know, like how we all like a good bargain these days oh, and yeah. shops tend to accommodate us for the bargains. Yeah. But back then, they never had that. So this was like the only way they could get a good bargain. Well, it was a, a way of survival as well, wasn't it? You know, um, trying yeah, to absolutely. survive in very harsh um, economic times. Because in the 17th century, the government introduced import duties on a range of goods. Now, of these, course they did. Of, of course they did. We see it all the time. Um, well, yeah. You know, particularly in cigarettes these days, particularly as they're trying to get everyone to stop yeah. smoking. Um, but back then, they were encouraged to smoke, I would say. And you know, <laughs> these, these things, they would come in. Um, the, the excise duties were put up really high, which took it out of the premise of a lot of people and ate away at the profits of people that were trading in those goods. Mm-hmm. So smuggling kind of was like a natural progression because they could get it into the country without paying these duties and make them more comparable price-wise and profit is always what drives the day isn't it well yeah absolutely yeah you know more and more goods are being taxed back in these these days and uh you know people didn't have the money to back that up with so like wages weren't going up in comparison so the cheaper you could get the goods the better and it's no different today really no, that's it. I mean, the, the government liked to tax everything, didn't they? I mean, this is why when, as an investigator, you go out to locations and you see windows bricked up. But the reason windows were bricked up initially was that um, there was a window tax. Yeah. So, well, yeah. Well, well, we get around it by bricking a window, then we ain't got to pay that bit. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. that's part of what's in that Georgian times. Or if you go and see the old Tudor houses, the upper floors overhang the lower floors because you would have had to have paid a ground tax. So you would have built your lower floor on ground level smaller and have your upper floors overhanging. So there are many ways that people would get around government taxation and um, smuggling in the say the 17th and 18th century was um, absolute massive business. And I think one thing we've all learned through this little foray of rabbit hole was the extent mm-hmm. of smuggling. 
Definitely. There's loads. Uh, it was a major industry. I mean, and it wasn't, you know, and going through some of this research, it wasn't even done clandestinely either. It no. was done quite blatantly, but as yeah. we will find out as we go along. Yeah, definitely. Now there were two, like there were two kind of categories of taxation. Um, one was the ones that were administered and collected by a separate government department, and then customs duties. So that was the cargo entering the country. Yes. Yeah? And then there would be a financial levy on that. So in lieu mm-hmm. of like fine wines, bolts of fabric, and stuff like that, they'd add that on to bring that yep. into the country. Um, so. Basically, it should generate more money for the exchequer. That's the import duties. Yeah, and then there Mm -hmm. was the war duty, the civil war duty, which actually took um, a tax on land, took place of two older taxations. It gets very confusing because they changed the law quite a lot around this time. But basically, um, wars cost money, and they raised money for these by increasing taxation on the public, right? Well, yeah. yeah, that was the go-to way of uh, financing wars back in the day. I mean, the Parliament or the King would actually just raise taxes on uh, certain and certain products, yeah, and uh, or commodities. And land would have been because everyone owned land of in some form or another, so that would have been a natural place to go to to increase the taxes on. Yeah. And domestic consumption, so it could be put on goods that you bought. Well, that's it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, um, obviously, during the war, um, it covered so many different items. But after the war, um, they, they reduced it, didn't they, just to cover chocolate, coffee, tea, beer, cider, mm-hmm. and spirits. All the good stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And then all the stuff that makes worth, life worth living, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, mind you, even now, you know, you get the um, the financial thing every year, don't you? On the on the telly, and they, they talk about tax going up or down or staying the same, and it's always like the spirits that are always kept low, and then cigarettes and everything go mm-hmm. sky high. Yeah, tobacco, coffee, all those things that we, you know, like they consider. Um, you know, um, pleasurable, I suppose. Yeah, well, sort of what a lot of people would... Non-essentials. Yeah, the government class them as non-essentials, but the general populace class them as essentials. So, yeah. yeah. I I think one of the latest ones is the sugar tax, isn't it? Yeah. About... Yeah. Yeah. And they've they've done that to say, oh, you know, it's because, you know, we're healthy living. You know, they've put it under the... You know, we're trying to reduce people's sugar intake, so we'll increase the tax so people won't buy it as much. Mm -hmm. Um, In actual fact, it's actually got nothing to do with that. It's to do with the fact that um, the sugar um, plantations out there have actually suffered. Um, Their um, crops have not been as fruitful. So it's actually to boost up their intake, you know, to keep their profits still as high as they were. Um, But in the 17th and 18th century, it actually included things like salt, leather and soap, which you would think were, you know, not, non-essentials you think those were quite essential you know so this tax that was put on goods um was raised and it was raised quite considerably as well at the time so it made things unaffordable for people which encouraged people to smuggle quite frankly absolutely and there was obviously like big companies or you know even shops and stuff they would employ people to go out in a gang and smuggle Mm mm-hmm 
So they well, could obviously yeah. get the stuff as cheap as they could and maximise the profit. Yeah, I think that's one thing I I was um, surprised at was the extent, and it didn't just go down to like little groups. Like I, in my head, I sort of had it before I researched this. I had it as like a group of like I don't know ten people, and you know <laughs> they were like completely secular and and out. You know it was a bad bad thing. You know, <laughs> but actually when we looked at this, it had people like funded investors in smuggling yes, gangs yeah. and um every part of like the local community would be involved in this to some level or other you know um, and the gangs were huge you know absolutely huge and yeah the areas regard you know on our coastline i mean you've got to remember england is quite a small country we've got a lot of coastline yeah and it's very prolific yes. it's very prolific you know and when you think about like the villages that are smattered along the coast back in the 18th 17th and 18th century of course you know it's not as big towns as they are now but um they, they were these were very involved in this you know and it was huge deliveries of smuggling we're not talking like a couple of barrels um oh, it's like it's extraordinary in fact <laughs> I mean, you're talking about actual ships sort of anchoring offshore and uh, sort of like a ferry operation going backwards and forwards yeah, to actually yeah. unload the ships of all the uh, contraband. Mm. And this would take, you know, this would take time. Time, resources. I mean, you've got the people yeah. to, you know, to transport it. I mean, it's not unheard of, and this is very general, um, for a trip, one trip, to bring in 3,000 gallons of spirits... That's some party. That is one heck That's of a it. party. Now, bear in mind, if you equate that to today to give everybody a, like, a mental image, that's roughly around 1,500 cases of brandy. Put that in your garage. Ooh. That's a lot. <laughs> that's, that's a heck of a lot. I think my what, garage could handle it? that, actually. Can you imagine what no, it yours about is... the particular village that it was going to? I mean, <laughs> they, they must have been like completely off their heads for the first like <laughs> months on end. You wouldn't be able to get the brandy in Kerry's garage because that's full of gin. So yeah, oh, <laughs> of gin that was so plentiful that um, there's a little folk story that they used, it was so plentiful that they used to clean it use clean use it sorry to clean their windows with gin. Yeah, you can imagine could, the smell. I can well imagine it. You know, but also you've got to remember that that spirits were usually above proof as well. So we're not talking yeah. like um, the, you know, like yeah, pink gin that you can bring in today. You know, this is strong stuff. This is this is incredibly strong stuff, and yeah. um, they would actually have to to water it down. You know, yeah, dilute um, it. You know, dilute day, it down. Because I mean, if that if that's the case, it mean, I mean, it wouldn't take much for someone to prove that that whole entire village is on the smuggling circuit you just walk into it and go whoa, whoa. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah. I, they're, they are complete have you smelt their windows they smell of gin <laughs> exactly their whole house smells of gin they're, they're definitely smuggles they're, they're yeah. mother's ruin gin by yeah. the way, you know. um, but you know like i say that's just a folk story um of um, i'm sure probably, it ruined a lot more people than just mothers i'm sure it did yeah i'm sure it did <laughs> But at the end of the day, gin back in the day was very, very cheap. We found this out through um, the Newgate show that we did, didn't we? They, they were yeah. on gin. Um, but the, the, the proof that was coming through from the smugglers was a very higher um, content of proof. It was I very, it was, very strong. But they could dilute it. I think it was probably closer to the paint stripper today oh. than the stuff yeah. they were getting in. Yeah. 
exactly. Um, I, I and... think that's why they had just the black lead on their windows because it just melted the paint away. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly. And it's also been yeah. said that four fifths of all the tea drunk around this time was actually um, contraband. It wasn't actually, but no one had paid duties on the tea that was coming through <laughs> legally. Um, so tea was a big thing as well. But we are, as a, you know, the UK as a whole, are massive tea drinkers, right? Yes, definitely. She says with a cup of tea in her hand right now. <laughs> well, yeah, well, you especially, Kerry. Yeah, I think you keep the tea industry going down your way quite well. Oh, so, so yeah. far we've learned about me that I've kept the chocolate trade, the tea trade <laughs> and the gin trade in. Yes, well, there you go. <laughs> Supply and demand. That's it, exactly. Now, this was all to do with sailing ships that bought the goods over from the continent. So we're not yeah. talking just like, you know... the. This is one of the things that I I quickly learned, that the infrastructure, shall we say, um, for smuggling was not what, again, we've got a very twisted image. There's a difference between the proper smuggling trade and wreckers. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So this is not things that just happen to turn up on the coast. This is an organised institution <laughs> yeah. uh, where it wouldn't just be English. You know, there'd be communications with the ports abroad um, and the, you yeah. know, the captains abroad and, and foreign, even people we were at war with, captains we would be in contact with and, uh, you know, as a smuggler, this is. Well, because this business overrided everything else. Yes, and you would sort of, like, talk to people and do business with people uh, who you're at war with because at the end of the day... Business is business. <laughs> Simple yeah. as. Multicultural UK is not a new thing. <laughs> nope. Is what I would yeah. say on that one. Quite often you're going to hear, you know, if you went to the marketplace, you wouldn't just be hearing from, like, the British people. You'd be hearing, like, the, you know, Danish. You'd be hearing French. You'd be hearing, yeah. um, you know, quite a lot, of, maybe even Spanish at times, you know, depending Spanish. on the period of history that yeah, you're looking at. Flemish, you know, mm-hmm. Dutch would have been huge, especially in our neck of the woods in the east of the country. Yeah, huge populations over here. Yeah, and there are some ports actually that actually have their roots um, abroad this year along that coastline of smuggler trade. You know, mm-hmm. some small ports that they were back in the day are now big ports, but <clears throat> when you look at what was coming from, you know, coming through, they used the smaller ports, but they became big ports because of the trade that was going through them. So big ports yeah. that we see nowadays, um, like um, Boulogne. And there was another one as well. I can't remember the bloody name of it now. But big ports that we know of now initially started off as small trading ports based basically in the smuggling yeah, trade. So that, yeah, so they would have had their foundations laid and their sort of financial capital was born off the back of uh, smuggling. Mm-hmm. So we're going to look at, you know, we're going to have a look at this. We're going to break it down a little bit more um, for you guys to sort of give you a general... The, oh, you know, a general flavour, <laughs> flavour being the operative mm-hmm. word there, um, about what it, what these smugglers did, because this is a massive trade that's going on under the eyes, um, you know, under the radar of the customs and excise men, and known as preventatives back in the day against the smugglers, the ones that were, you know, trying to police the coast. They were known as yeah. preventatives. And um, so that they... they 
this is all going on. And I, th- I would say under the eye of, because a lot of those people were bribed to keep their mouths shut because of the, op- the scale of the operation. And when you start looking at what's being brought in under the smugglers' um, trade, it is, um, I would say, probably quite hard um, to police because there's only one or two people trying to police that. And these smuggler gangs are absolutely enormous when we start getting into yeah. that side of things. So, I mean... To show you the level of the community um, level, when the Silly Isles um, was totally, basically totally reliant on smuggling for survival, that's Mm -hmm. one of, you know, just one little island, and they were bought, when the preventative measures were stepped up in that area to prevent smuggling, it actually brought them to the point of starvation. Yeah. You know, so whole communities would rely on the smuggling trade to survive. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. There we go. So that gives you a little idea. Now, there are times um, in the Shetland Islands and around Falmouth where every penny was spent on contraband. wasn't actually going into the coffers of, the, of any form of excise. They, just, they, they, they lived off all, all the, the, the booty, shall we say, and that was coming in the smugglers. The map of the exchequer of the UK at the time must have had some very big holes in it when yeah, nothing was generated at all. You can imagine them sitting there going, everyone's sitting there drinking tea <laughs> and I'm only earning, like, this amount from it. Yeah, yeah. Hold on, what's going on? <laughs> that's it. And then they, they pay a visit to the town and go, whoa, this gin smells really powerful. Yeah. <laughs> the tax on they tea was actually going. 70% of its initial cost. That's a massive markup. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. When you think about it in terms like that, then you can understand why they were smuggling because you can, you know, you buy it for, I don't know, three quid and then you have to buy it normally, you know, under normal circles for £10. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? That is a massive difference. Even if you smuggled it in and it still cost you three quid to buy in initially and you sold it for £5, that's still not a bad little markup on that. And you're undercutting the market brilliantly there, aren't you? You know, that's... Well, because... That makes your customers happy. They're getting a cheaper product, but oh. you, you're, the smugglers that are smuggling it in are also making a profit on top of it. So uh, happy days. Yeah. And, and pet tradesmen who are, you know, buying contraband, they're buying it for like £5 and selling it for 10 That's well big profits in their little pocket. Yeah. So you can yeah. understand why, the, you know, this became such a big, big area for people and as I say you've got to remember this is a completely different you know a completely different situation to wrecking that is not what this is this is an organised infrastructure of people bringing mm-hmm. illicit goods into the country to avoid taxations yeah and that is it it's purposeful yeah. it makes you wonder who the bigger criminals are doesn't it <laughs> yeah yeah it certainly does <laughs> <laughs> now William Pitt the Prime Minister, the younger one obviously in 1784 suggested that of the £13 million pounds of weight of tea consumed in Britain, only £5.5 5 had actually been bought in legally gives you kind of yeah. an idea of the extent of this now, um, smuggling gangs let's talk about gangs they were around 50 to 100 people roughly, 50 to 100 people that's like on the lower level Yeah, 
Uh, this would have involved everyone because I quite like the, and they would have had a Pacific Tasks as well. I mean, you know, sort of like just reading the notes here. I mean, you would have had the Spotsman who would have uh, actually his job was to direct the ship towards shore. You know, so they would have had to have knowledge of navigation and stuff like that and know sort of where the shadows were and everything. And then you'll have the ladder, the ladderman, who would have arranged for the unloading of the cargo. And uh, then you have the tubsman, who would actually, well, I think that speech for itself, would ferry the cargo backwards to the actual beach or wherever. And then, this is my favourite, you'll have the batsman, who are there to protect the tubsman. Yeah. So you've got like the you know like you said you've got the spotsman now you the spotsman wouldn't just have been there to like watch for the ship they would have been involved in actually organising the ship so they're the ones who are going and talking to the captains of the ships and organising mm-hmm. the cargo and then watching you know organising when it was going to come into the country and then watching for it and where it was going to land and the time it was going to land and all that side of it so it's a bigger a bigger picture than just watching from the shore for a ship you know there, there's a lot more gone in the back the lander arranging the unloading yeah. of the cargo now that's organizing all the boats how it's going to get from the ship to the shore yeah that's a big operation when you're looking at massive cargoes well yeah it's sort of like you know in imports today i mean that is a job in itself to you know organize the unloading of ships and stuff you know because it is done in a particular way as well See, I mean, the, the spotsman, for example, um, it's not far to imagine that they could just wreck the ship and turn themselves into wreckers to to cut out the middleman, because then they wouldn't. They could skip the bloke unloading the cargo and just pick <laughs> it up off the beach. Boats were a very uh, ships were a very uh, valuable and commodity, and you wouldn't want to purposely wreck a ship because then you're sort of cutting your nose off to spite your face because that is part of your sort of like transport network. Ah, uh, see, so this is where the government could have got sneaky. They could have put <laughs> they could have put their spotsman in. They could have put their their govern, government officials in as a spotsman, made the ships run aground, and that cancels out their... Ah, but there's a responsibility there, isn't there? If you want to continue your trade, you don't want to be wrecking the ships. You know, it's you know, it's a ferrying back and forth scenario. Um, So yeah, I wouldn't have. um, I can. I I can. I mean, although. But no, I think um, this is an organised operation that is, you know, beyond wrecking. I think wrecking was like more opportunistic. Yeah. I think if a ship did wreck, it was known. That, it was um, just a rubbish spotsman. Yeah, it was illegal. <laughs> yeah, it was illegal to own any goods if there was um, one member of the crew still alive. So yeah. um, that was opportunistic. If a ship, but although crab, although people did have their own individual jobs, the whole gang would look out still for um, HM Customs. Of course they did. You know, tub, yeah, tubsman. None of them wanted to be caught. No, no, gosh, no, no. There, there was huge you know, legal implications on this. This isn't... Smuggling was a massive problem and they were very harsh in regards to punishment of these. You know, if you was a smuggler, you got hung. End of. Well, yeah. You know, so a tubsman carried the goods. Now, you're looking at massive bales. You're looking at Mm -hmm. massive, like, barrels, 
and you know we'll go into that in a, in a bit and so you need a lot of people to carry these you know and a batsman you need protection these are nasty mm. these are nasty people yeah. as well they these are hard hard men and women yeah. i would say uh-huh now the actual coast oh yeah because i don't think the women are too innocent in all this Oh, no. of course we are. <laughs> yeah, the masterminds behind it. Probably. Yeah, probably yeah. They're, like, they're like, oh, I need some nail varnish. Smuggle me in some. Yeah. <laughs> they're nagging the husbands. Right, go out and do yeah. some smuggling for me. Yeah. <laughs> Smuggle now, yourself some dinner. Oh, my God, you <laughs> Preventative officers. Um actually got divided into 33 areas around the coastline so and there would only be like two or three of these per area so you've got like 33 areas that the country's coastline is split up into and only two or three so you can imagine how difficult it was and their whole job was just to prevent smuggling or catch the smugglers so, i mean that's a task i wouldn't envy that job no that's not a job you would really want is it paul no no definitely not no, uh, just mate. take the pay off the smugglers would give you to look the other way. Easy. <laughs> I'd, I'd be one of the investors and they'd be smuggling for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there's insufficient officers to patrol the whole of the, co- the coastline. So you can understand how easy it was for smugglers, really. I mean, they yeah. were wary of the preventatives, <laughs> but, you know, like, relatively speaking, they're not much of a threat. No, they're just a bit of a mild nuisance, you know. The preventatives will probably show up on the cliff tops or far away and sort of just have a nose and think, you know, that's too big for us, let's go. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah. I suppose if they got forewarned of a big shipment coming in, they could then call, like, the army in and, yeah. you know, like, the military, should I say, in. But that was very rare because people wouldn't testify against the gangs because they were so scared of them, <laughs> so, basically. So or yeah. they were too involved well, not only in the that, process. They, they might have needed them. Yeah, well, they might have needed them as well. Yeah. Especially especially landing the goods and stuff, because that would have been the responsibility of the towns or the sort of ports and little villages along the coast. And if there's 100 people or more involved, that's the whole village. Yeah, that's exactly it, isn't it? And, you know, you've got sea smugglers, so you've got the fishermen and the the, Mm -hmm. the tubs that carried it backwards and forwards to the ships. Um, you've got the land smugglers, so that's the local community who've transporting the goods. Because once you've got this massive shipment coming, you've got to get rid of it. So you've got to, you know, get it out into the communities and people to buy it, to the tradesmen, to the investors. You know, so you've got the land smugglers. And then you've got the foreign smugglers, obviously, from the abroad that are, are helping to do this, this thing. So there's a lot of people involved in this. We keep saying that. I want to keep defining that because it was... A big business. Now, let's have a look at the contraband, because I love some of these things. The contraband was clearly defined um, regarding the packaging because of how it's got to be transported. It's got to be able to be carried or put onto the back of horses um, to to move it. So when you're looking at tobacco, now, obviously, it's got a chance of getting wet. You don't want it to get wet. So it was wrapped in oil skin, Mm -hmm. you know, um, barrels of brandy, you know, floated. So if they did mm-hmm. get caught by the cousin's men, they could just chuck it over the shore. You know, so the oil skin and, and the, the barrels themselves would be protected so they could then come yep. back later and pick it back up again. Mm. <laughs> but this is, again, we're wrecking 
and um, smuggling gets confused because if they get caught by the customs or a ship out, you know, that would be patrolling the, the straits, as it were, then they would offload their cargo. If that got washed up, that's fair game for the locals. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's just, yeah, the local pickers would be, you know, your sort of beach combs and stuff, because what you've got to remember, back in those times, these uh, more of the inland communities were very poor, and they would have gone down to the coast just to subsist on uh, just to, you know, sort of just see what they could actually find and use for themselves. So, yeah, yeah beach combing was a very popular sort of thing to do I to supplement them. To, to supplement your diet or income, mm. even. So concealment on the ship became a big, a big thing too. So they used to do false bottoms on barrels because barrel dipping became um, another thing from the mm-hmm. um, excise people to check the depth of the barrel when they caught on to that that's what the smugglers were doing were false bottoms in barrels. They started dipping into the barrels, a bit like oil when you check your oil these days in a, um, in a car. Yeah, we have the old dipstick, put it in, yeah. Yeah, That's all. that sort of thing. Um, tobacco was um, actually woven into ropes, so it was, like, hidden in plain sight. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. I didn't, yeah, that's, that makes sense, and I suppose it would have made good rope. Well, they make rope out of hemp, and that's a sort of like a leaf, isn't it? So, yeah, you can understand that. Hidden in plain sight. And um, so, yeah, so they employed all sorts of different methods to, like, hide and conceal the um, contraband on board so they didn't have to offload it. But if they did, then it floated. So, again, win-win situation, really. And if it's not found on the ship, so say you've got you're being approached by a customs man. This is, the, honestly, when you start looking, you can understand why some <laughs> of the laws that are in now that, um, you know, back from these days. If they approached a ship and they started offloading stock... Yeah, so like they're approaching yeah. from one side and all the contraband's going off the other side of the stock, it's floating. Because it's not found on their ship, they can't prove that it was that ship that it was on. Right, I see. Yeah, so they can't get done for it. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> right? Makes sense, yeah. They need evidence, yeah. Even back then, yeah, it's the evidence, isn't it? And, uh, yeah, if it's all just floating around, you can say, well, it was here when we got it. Exactly. <laughs> so, obviously, the customs men are going... <laughs> Really, that's a lie. <laughs> but they can't prove that it came. That's Andy. Yeah. So you know. So mm. this is why they started employing. But a lot of smuggling goods got lost in that way. So that's why they started employing other security measures to to conceal it on the ship because they don't want to be getting rid mm-hmm. of their stock over the edge. You know, because it's you no. know, less profits, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> starting to get an idea of how big an operation this is now it was so well organized there were several landing areas they didn't go right um it was like the best at the moment so you've got a ship coming over you know it's due over on i don't know tomorrow we've got a ship that's due yeah. to come over tomorrow they've got several different areas that they, that ship could come and land the goods as it were mm-hmm. on the day they then look at, okay, where's the customs officers and, you know, where's the best place to land this, which is where your watcher and signalling comes in to finalise the drop right. to create less problems for the gang, basically. Mm. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense, yeah. So there's, you know, 
and you're thinking of the, you know they didn't have radios or anything like that so there's some there's a fair bit of communication network going on you know ship to shore and stuff like that with the rudimentary stuff so yeah these are skilled people that are doing this yeah of course they are you know sailors were very skilled back in those days mm. and without you know the the technology that we've got nowadays now the boat yeah. was always black you know um famous pirate of the caribbean moment here black pearl <laughs> black ship Ooh. black sails you know and they were used for smuggling they can yeah. they can travel and not be seen on the seas so again they're avoiding um the navy that was going up and down and policing the 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 channel yeah so that's what they, and they were used to signal using um a lamp you know like an old-fashioned lamp or a lock and flint a spout lamp and even during the day they would come in it wouldn't always be a nighttime thing they could do this during the day and they would actually use a, a, a old smoke smoke signals oh right yeah light a fire yeah a beacon yeah, yeah. yeah. on headland yeah they used why to not? use gorse because it created the most smoke mm-hmm. which is why that wasn't a favoured use in homes for tinder oh right because it created too much smoke Okay. Oh, see, a little interesting fact you learn, isn't it? Little interesting well, fact you learn. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Now, obviously, getting it up onto the beach was a thing. So they would use tugboats to shuttle back and forth. Now, depending on the depth of the boat, how big the keel was on the boat would depend on how far in they would come. So, yeah. if it was like a shallowed, bottomed boat, like a tub, they could get into like the the shallows as it were but then they'd have to walk into the water to get the goods out and this is this is where the the tubsmen come in and then they get loaded up and then they get to the beach right mm-hmm. or they would have something called a kelp cart a kelp cart was seaweed yeah mm-hmm. a kelp okay. cart was flat bottomed ah right and then they could drive that straight up onto the sands yeah. and obviously kelp Good way of hiding the contraband as well. Yeah, just, just cover it up. Cover it over. With yeah, because they would have used the seaweed, I think, for fertilisers and stuff on the land, wasn't it? It was quite common. Yeah, all sorts of things in Ireland. Mm. They used to eat it as well, didn't they? Mm. So, you know, those those kinds of things were used. And horses, obviously, um, were very commonly used and donkeys and stuff like that. Um, now, the Tubmans actually carried two kegs each. Now, that's they're about £45 each. <laughs> Cheap, isn't it? No, no, no. Wait. In bait. I know. £45 pounds is in bait. They were carry two of them. Yeah, yeah. One on the chest and one on the back. Because a barrel is not a particularly sort of, uh, you know, ergonomically sort of design thing to carry, no. is it? No, but some of the designs of the, the barrels are interesting. It's another little interesting fact for you. <laughs> things you find out. Okay, off you go. They would actually, rather than being round, they'd have one side that was flat. Oh, I see. So oh, it was sort of like, good. not massively, but enough to make it easier to carry. Uh, so they smuggler barrels. Smuggler yeah. barrels, exactly. It's, a, it's right. a bit worrying, Paul. She does know a lot about this, doesn't she? I mean, <laughs> she does and she agree. does live on an island. <laughs> yeah, so it makes you wonder what she gets up to. <laughs> it does yeah. make you wonder what I get up to in my spare time. <laughs> <laughs> now, these were heavy, obviously. Uh, you, have got, you have got Dead Man's Cove near you, haven't you? I, I do. Uh, 
Yeah. yeah, I think maybe that might be one of those towels to keep you away, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where... Kerry's always think... going on about it when we visit yeah. her, so yeah. I think that's where she brings all her contraband in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dead Man's Cove is actually to do with um, the dead bodies that were found in the Thames. They tended to wash yeah. up. And yeah. wash up there, and if they couldn't find the body in the Thames, then they'd have a look around there, and that's usually where the tide would uh, drop it off, as it were. <laughs> and that, and that's what she tells everybody. <laughs> yeah, and that's what she tells yeah. everyone. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Now you got to, you know, thinking about this. Going back to the Tubsman guys, keep on topic. Right. right. Going back to the Tubsman. Um, they, you know, if you if you're climbing up a cliff face, they do it on rope ladders, and they're climbing up rope ladders with barrels on their front and their chest, yeah, um, on their chest and their. Almost be someone coming. I don't think I could even climb a rope ladder without. <laughs> rope ladders aren't the easiest things to climb. <laughs> no, trust me, they're not are they? <laughs> <laughs> now the batsmen um, were obviously the protectors of the bat of the tubsmen. Bless them, you know they're they're the, the violent ones. I think they're all pretty violent, to be fair. But the, <laughs> yeah. the actual this is like the origins of the protection racket. Hmm. Yeah, is where, is where is. this comes from. And um, they would use either a stout oak club, a flail, or handguns. You remember the old, you know, stand and deliver type guns. Yeah. Yeah, the old, yeah, yeah. the flintlock um, pistols and mm. things like that, yeah. And they would have two rows of these standing sort of like in, mm. in like a corridor. Think of it like a, a corridor of these batsmen at strategic points to protect the cargo. Not so much the, bat, um, the, the batsmen, poor old, um, sorry, the tubsmen. It's the contraband they're protecting. Let's let's not mm. fool ourselves into thinking they're protecting their men. It's the contraband that they're mm. protecting on this one, um, and th- they didn't care. They just did not care who they killed or who they who, yeah, well, who yeah. they took out. You know, because the product is more valuable than the uh, person because the people are expendable. Yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah, unfortunately, that's the true story there, isn't it? People <laughs> are expendable. Now, the horses, they obviously, horses are a massive commodity, and they would get these from the local farmers. Sometimes, if the farmers didn't cooperate, they would be intimidated into cooperation. Um, remember, for a farmer, their horses are a valuable commodity for day to day use. They don't want their horses um, overused or winded from a night's, you know. Yes, into the smuggling. So not all farmers would be happily borrow my horses. You know what I mean? They they were intimidated into it, and if they didn't, then intimidation was used. Like I say, this is the birth of of protection rackets. Yeah, basically, um, roadside ambushes, haystack fires, livestock suddenly getting ill, like sheep, all of a sudden yeah, coming down ill. All see, those lend us your horses, or there might be an accident that might happen. Yeah. <laughs> Now, yeah. storage of contraband is a thing as well. And what you have to do is think, right, my first initial image of, of smuggling was they'd put it in a handy cave. Yeah, of course. Right? Handy That's in all the cave. books. All the books got to be put into a cave. But when I looked into this, there are tales of this. There are places that are um, said to be, um, you know, smuggler caves. I think we can all think of several places where it's supposed yeah. to be a smuggler cave. Um, some people have even built the tourist trade on the fact that it was a smuggler's cave. Not necessarily, because if you think about it, a lot of caves are tidal. 
So you've got to think yeah. about keeping your contraband dry. You've gone mm. to all this trouble so far, you know, of keeping it dry and getting it to land. The last thing mm. you want to do is put it in a cave that floods on the next tide and that sweeps your contraband out or gets it wet or with the tide and the flow of the water is going to smash your, you know, your contraband against the wall and maybe break the barrels or, you know, ruin the, the sacking it comes in. So caves were temporary hiding spots. Yeah, they must... Plus, everyone would have known where to cut... They're, they're too static because part of the art of the smuggling was to keep the goods moving, so you wouldn't have actually kept them in caves for very long. And plus... The excise men would have known where all the caves are and stuff, so they wouldn't have been that sort of uh, sort of secret hiding places. You would have possibly have had to be a bit more imaginative and move Ooh. and try and get the goods as inland as quickly as possible and then disperse them. It is. It's about moving that stock as quickly as possible, avoiding, um, you know, like um, detection and getting the money back for your next smuggling run. It, mm-hmm. that, that's the drive but some caves you know we, we you know i was looking around at some of these these caves and um you know devon obviously being the main area um for this now ilfracombe called samson caves now it's said to have gotten its name from an infamous smuggler that used it as a storehouse um <laughs> but <laughs> it's it was written about in the 1850s in a book called The Call of the Chambercombe. And that's really where the story comes from. It's, it's quite doubtful that they would... But this is a great smuggler's tale, isn't it? You know, um, anybody who's got something like that, it's just one of those things. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can see why they make good stories. Though. I mean, you know, it has it has everything, the smuggler, the romance of it all. You know, it just conjures up a whole image. And I think for authors of the time and and since, you know, it's just been a good staple of uh, a novel if you're writing about that sort of thing. Paul? Yeah, you yeah, know, it's right. But they were used, you know. They, you know, when we we talk about it, the, the other thing that you you hear about smugglers is smuggler tunnels, not just caves, but they they would excavate tunnels. I mean, how true this is, I couldn't find much verified information mm. about t- uh, proper tunnels that have been found. There's lots of talk about them, but there's very little verified information. Yeah, about I, I those. don't I don't think that um, smugglers tended to tunnel themselves no. i think they used the natural um tunnels that would form like in chalk cliffs and things to even just stash their stock for a little while just in case there was someone coming or something you know tales of tunnels are very sort of common and even sort of uh just stepping away you know around castles and sort of stuff like this i think these were sort of may have been uh, introduced as a ruse again you know to sort of throw people off the scent you know they sort of like you know well, there's a tunnel and stuff like that i think there may be a lot of that in these sort of stories well, of there's um the Trims true crimes museum down in hastings obviously they're right on the coast and they're re- the, the actual museum is set in chalk cliff caves. Um, yeah. And there is obviously rumours that they were used by smugglers. Now, I, I, th- I personally think that because they're not that far deep into the uh, cliffs, that it would just be a case of it's somewhere that they can stash their goods to um, 
you know, send them out to different places. So there's like a cash. So that so they've got like a little stash of stuff. So when someone needed it, it was like, okay, well, I'll nip down the local cave and get it. <laughs> Maybe, who knows? <laughs> mm, but I don't think they tunnelled it out. I just think it's a natural cliff, uh, a natural cave. But I think the amount of people that are involved in the smuggling, you know, like, like huge, commu- you know, like the whole community, they would have just dispersed the goods throughout the community within their houses and stuff, outhouses and mm. stuff like that, because there's no way two excise men could actually go for a whole sort of... They may have found lit, a little stashes in people's barns and stuff, but they, I think the the art was to disperse it amongst the community. To be and, fair, I don't think they needed to go through people's houses. They just sniffed the windows. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is true. This is true. Now, um, you know, I think, having looked at this... There's, I don't think caves and tunnels were particularly well used. As no. well. I couldn't find any verified information on this, although there's a lot of rumour and a lot of tales about, um, you know, caves and stuff. I mean, you know, you think of tin mines, I think that's more likely to have been used if that's, you know, going mm. through the tin mines um, or stashing it in certain areas of the tin mines. Very poor trade back in the day. You've <laughs> got... Um, you know, farmers' barns, you know, uh, hay barns that they could easily um, put things. I've even heard of um, them using a dung heap to hide um, the contraband in. Um, Sellers of the local um, inn, you know, that's where pubs come into this, you know, the local Mm. taverns and stuff um, would come through, um, that sort of thing. So whether or not they would initially split the stash, I don't know, or whether or not they would maybe drop to various points once they got it on board uh, on land sorry mm. would be you know i mean when you start looking at it in 1785 a 96 gallon cask of rum was found at watermouth cove but it was on the cove not in a cave in 1801 mm-hmm. 224 gallons of gin and 164 gallons of brandy were found on the foreshore they used to use the moving sands you know like if it was a sandy sand dunes they would stash it and cover it very hard yeah. to detect on you know the sands shift all the time so it's very hard to detect it um yeah. and when you've got like some of the um people that were involved in this you think um a smuggler from north devon thomas benson um in 1747 actually became an mp for barnstable ah <laughs> uh, so, the crooked mp <laughs> yeah yeah you know so when you start thinking about that, that that's very unlikely isn't it i mean Politicians being crooks. <laughs> Don't hear of that every, any, anywhere, do you? He was actually granted a lease on Lundy to um, basically carry convicts, but he actually landed them on Lundy instead to run his smuggling operation. Cool. You get paid by the government to transport them, then, yeah, oh dear. An, old, an, an entrepreneur there, I think we've got. <laughs> well, yeah. he did become overconfident and was fined for smuggling and stripped of his office. He didn't pay and his lands in Biddeford were seized. And then to recover his losses, he persuaded the captain of the Nightingale to fire it, like set fire to his ship, for insurance. Yeah. Um, but that plan was discovered and he actually had to go to Portugal. But he was actually tried and executed in 1754 for his wrongdoings. So although he, how hard you fall, do you know what I mean? How hard you yeah. rise and or how fast you, uh, what's the saying? How fast you rise is, um, 
you full the harder harder. you fall yeah yeah yeah, yeah. the harder oh, no, you fall yeah that that little saying on that one now St Clement's Caves in Hastings um, is actually believed to be partially naturally formed caves and it is a result of the sand mining and they, although they are built as smugglers' caves, there's actually no record of them being used as such. Now, St. Clement's Caves is actually um, known as Smugglers' Adventure. So they've actually built a whole... This is what I mean. They build a whole tourist attraction <laughs> off the back of it. Um, and But there's no no record of them being used. And there's... Yes, it's been used as hospitals, air radio, as ballrooms, music venues, all that sort of thing. But nothing's smuggling. No, what well, it's always... isn't it a bit like? Isn't it a bit like um, Black Gang Chine down on the Isle of Wight? Yeah, they've they've sort of built that whole um, like uh, theme park thing on the basis of smugglers. Yeah, yeah, well, that makes a good story, doesn't it? And dinosaurs. Yeah, and dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> and crooked houses. Yeah, and, crooked and it's all falling <laughs> into the sea at the moment. So. It is. If you get a chance to go to the Isle of Wight, go and visit it before it has gone disappeared. No, they just move it back every year. They, what they lose in land, they move back. So, yeah. yeah. Whenever you go, because I've been there a few times, um, you go, there's lots of places that are like cordoned off because it's like obviously subsided yeah. into the sea. And all they do is move it back, hmm. which is really funny, really. Expensive. <laughs> I was going to say, they can't maintain. move it all back. They'd have to move it out to the sides, I would have thought, as opposed to moving it back. Because you can't move a road. Well, it's getting closer and closer to the road. They're all right at the moment, but yeah. it's getting closer to the main road that runs the coast there. So we'll have to wait and see what happens with Black Gang Chine. Um, I'd imagine there's probably a heck of a lot of underpinning going on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and protecting the coastline, yeah. yeah, a bit of work going on in that way. Now let's talk about because this wasn't just like the the south coast. This went on all around Ireland, you know, as I say all of our coastlines, even Scotland. So let's have a look at Colzine Castle and Caves, Paul. Yeah. Okay. Well, where's that on the research? Underneath. I'm, I'm lost. Caves. I'm lost on that. <laughs> <laughs> Right. There's, there's lots of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did a thorough job, is all I'm saying. Okay. Right. Um, what one? Colzine Castle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, dear. Yeah. There, apparently, there's a lot of um, smuggling going on in that area. And it's quite close to the Iron Man. Mm hmm. Um, where obviously taxis were much lower. So, what, what, mind you, would they want... Uh, I don't know why they done smuggling there. If all their taxis were lower. Well, traditionally, they... uh, the Isle of Man, and even today, yeah, it's always been classed as a bit of a tax haven. But, yeah, probably easier just to get the, uh, you know, the contraband in on the Isle of Man. But that, they obviously... Didn't they smuggle tobacco, tea and brandy? Mm-hmm. As well. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, yeah, it was very prevalent there. Um, they smoked a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. This is one place where they have got tunnels and very well looked into tunnels as well. The archaeology is still going on there um, to find... You know, things that are... You know, why the tunnels were there. They still don't know. They they assume it's smuggling. 
They think mm. it's smuggling, but they also think that the tunnels are older than that. So there's still a lot of archaeology going on um, there as well. And there's this haunted tale. Got to love this. This is this brings us into some mythologies as well regarding smuggling. Is that um, there's a tale of a piper that went into the caves but never returned, and they some swear some swear that they can still hear the playing of the pipe around the area. What what sort of pipes was it? Are we talking like bagpipes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, piper. Yeah. Oh, okay. So basically, they're saying a Scotsman went into the cave where there's lots of brandy and whiskey and, <laughs> and never come out. Bagpipes are totally sort of that. Uh, that, that sounds a bit Scotland. iffy to me. <laughs> wow. Well, they are actually an English in, um, an instrument originally. What bagpipes? Okay. Yes. Pipes, yeah. Well, I never. Well, I never. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just a Scots maiden famous. <laughs> but but they, they pipes, yeah, sort of like the north of England, yeah, pipes, uh, Irish pipes, yeah. You know, it's an instrument, you know, it was quite widely used. But I sort of, like, saw this part of the uh, research earlier and I sort of went off on a side note and done a bit of research because it actually sort of triggered something and... Uh, I think uh, the connection of uh, sort of ghosts playing instruments, it, it does sort of ring true, especially around coastal areas. Cause I, and there is quite a few stories of this, and it's not that much of a stretch of the imagination to sort of say that these smugglers sort of spread these rumours of a ghostly piper or a drummer or something like that because they could replicate it at night. Yeah, because they could, they could they could have one of their people drumming. Yeah, playing a pipe. You know, all those people are getting a bit close. You know, get the pipe going. You know, and they'll go. Yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, but this you, is quite common practice. Yeah, you've got to remember also that they're going to buy into the local legend to keep anybody they don't want away. So anybody mm-hmm. that isn't involved in this operation, they don't want them snooping around. So they're very superstitious, very religious people back in this time. So if you spread a superstition mm-hmm. or if you buy into the local folklore, then it's going to keep people away. You know, like going back to the witches' curses, going back to black dog, you know, uh, black dog sightings, particularly on the Devonshire coast and stuff like that. You know, it's a massive thing. Also, I mean, Norfolk, you've got that story. And when we get on later on, there's even a story of a white lady um, which they've sort of worked out wasn't a ghost. She was actually had phosphorus um, draped onto her clothing and she would walk to scare away people. So they would back up the folklore stories and the mythology of the area to keep people away. They don't want people... Oh, I, sorry, I didn't actually see that kind of moment. I see in your research that you've got one story that was recorded by Sir William Berriton. Yeah. Um, who travelled around um, Great Britain in the uh, 1630s and he made his way to Calzine. Because mm-hmm. um, you're better at reading than I am, do you want to just read the, the quote you've got in there? OK. Only one of his sons, servants and others took a candle and conducted us to the cave where there is either a notable imposture or most strange and must, much to be admired footsteps and impressions which are here to be seen of men, children, dogs, connies. I don't know what connies are. And divers are the creatures. 
These here conceived to be spirits, and if there be no such thing but an elaborate practice to deceive, they do most impudently betray the truth. For one of this knight's sons and another Galloway gentleman affirmed unto me that all the footsteps have been put out and buried in sand overnight, and have been observed to be renewed the next morning. So basically, in, in layman terms and bringing it up to modern day, what is actually said is, busted... Yeah, hashtag busted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I think so. But that is still a massive project that's ongoing. Um, A massive, beautiful place. Um, When you look at it, I was thinking, oh, hashtag road trip, but it's a bit far. Oh, where is it? Ayrshire. Yeah, right out of the wilds of Scotland there, me dear. I did tell you it was a bit far away for a road trip, but it does. <laughs> when you look at it online, it is absolutely really beautiful. Um, I'm sure it is. I'm sure yeah, it is. Yeah, it is absolutely fantastic um, to look at. And you can visit um, the castle, obviously, when we all come out of lockdown. So you'll have to keep an eye out for that one, for when it reopens. Okay. Mm, Another yeah. one that archaeolo- archaeologically backs up. Um, a coastline is Dutchman's Cove, which is in Baltimore in Ireland. Now, in the in the caves, you know, like uh, the oh, the rocks, you can actually see niches where candles and lanterns were used to to signal pirates or smugglers um, at night time. And there is another staircase at the Gocane Point um, that's located at the headline, which leads to a subterranean cavern with a waterway which boats could enter. So this is like where the mythology builds up of a boat enters a cave rather yeah. than anything else, you know, like and Lisa. So, you know, it is being researched yeah. by archaeological There's... proof. There are places like this exist, but they're very few and far between. And yeah. uh, I think it's sort of like the novelists and the romantics or like expand it and sort of, well, it, well, it is quite a quaint little thing if you look at it, sort of, and if you read it like that, isn't it? And it'd be quite, it's no stretch of the imagination to see it to jump that these sort of little in, in, inlets and subterranean tunnels are everywhere. Yeah. Which are quite clearly not. No, not not to the extent that we have that mental image of, yes. you know, it was mostly coming up onto shores um, than into caves or Well, or it would have been easier just to land it on the beach. I mean, you know, people aren't stupid, they're practical, you know, they are going to choose the easiest way to get contraband off a ship and onto shore, and that is to offload it directly onto the beach. And most go, caves go. aren't very big, and if you think about the the operation of some of these, you know, that's going on, like... You know, when we come on to the next segment of the show, we're going to be talking about a particular gang. And when you think about the amount of people, how many people can you fit in a cave? Let's be fair. Going back to well. you, what you were saying about that the quote, um, looking in uh, where it says about conies. Mm-hmm. Coney could refer to places, people, animals, food or ships. Oh, it could refer to anything then. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it could... He, he could be referring, I mean, because he says conies and divers. Yeah, yeah. So I should imagine in that respect he's talking about a ship, possibly. Yeah, yeah maybe, probably yeah. little boats, little skiffs or conies and divers. Yeah, it does sound like it. Exactly. Yeah, you could well yeah. be right I, I got my I got my research onto that one. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Love a bit of research going on in the background. Anyway, on that note, we've actually come to the end of the first segment of the show. Join us after the break and we will continue with our little look into smuggling. (laughs) 
very price here. If there's nothing me and my friends enjoy more here on the other side, it is to sit back and relax and listen to the Paranormal Concept Show right here on the PAUK Radio Network. Broadcasting a plethora of interesting and informative content for all your paranormal needs. Find them across social media to keep up to date with forthcoming shows and all their other adventures. Hello, is there anybody there? Hello, and we're back in the room. Um, we're going to be carrying on with the Hawkehurst gang. Is, is that? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They just didn't spell it right. Maybe they were illiterate. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first reference to this gang was actually called the Hulk Ho- Hoist Ginge, um, which was in a letter to John Collier in 1735. But basically, it's the Hawkehurst gang, um, which was a massive gang um, over in Kent. It's the Romney Marsh area. So it's talking. Yeah, about. I, I've actually been to Romney Marsh. It's, it's quite a good area yeah yeah it's quite a nice place nice chip shop to sit and eat fish and chips <laughs> no, trust you boy. good cod and, and, and no doubt yeah absolutely really nice cod down there um yeah maybe that's where they smuggle cod i don't know <laughs> you never know no they, they might have done yeah so but yeah so that this was a gang in around 1740 um and i think they um, operated at Silver Hill, which is Hurst Green and Roberts Bridge. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, and apparently there was there was a HM revenue officer around there as well. That I, I think he was like one of those officer dibble type people, and was like, <laughs> oh. you know, when when they was out, it's like, oh, not again. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, this this revenue officer was <laughs> yeah yeah got, got got that right then um, yeah his name was uh, Thomas Carswell and apparently he was shot by the some of the smugglers mm, he was the smugglers. yeah well he must have been shot by one of the smugglers but maybe they all took pot shots and missed <laughs> not very accurate <laughs> shooting back in those days but he was shot yeah. and killed whilst trying to apprehend some of the smugglers. Now, one of the smugglers, George Chapman, was actually gibbeted in his home village um, on Hurst Green uh, following in, this incident. And incidentally, me and Richard have been and seen a real-life gibbet post. Yes, you have, haven't you? Yeah. And actually, if you want to know more about gibbeting, then you need to go and listen to our show on hangings on the gallows. Yeah, and, and I, I do believe, haven't we got a, pl- a blog about it as well. <laughs> yeah, if we if do. you haven't, we should have Richard. Yeah, yeah, oh, right. yeah but, okay. But take take a look at our website anyway. All the all the shows, past shows and blogs are on there. Um and it's paranormalconcept.com. Just thought I'd get that in there this week. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> now this was a massive gang. We're talking like five hundred uh, mounted um men and armed men within an hour for a smuggling yeah. run. So this is like yeah. a well oiled precision machine of smuggling operations I would say if you can um, get that many men going in a very short space of time and they were very notorious they were very very violent in the local area they were very very um, powerful in their own right they, this is one they would that the customs would have been wanting to take down I would have thought they didn't yeah. care who they came up across who they 
killed who they just didn't care you know they were really um i would say they probably were the a bit a 500 gang kind of strength craze twin <laughs> scenario do you know what well, i mean, yeah, I mean they, were, they were quite brazen i mean like in 1744 it's recorded that three large cutters laden with contraband sailed into pevensey the goods were loaded onto 500 waiting pack horses to be carried inland for distribution. Um, so for, for an operation, I mean, that big, yeah. you would have really had to be very brazen and not care. Yeah. I mean, that's massive. I mean, think 500 horses. Yeah, yeah. Just the horses. Forget the men that are handling the horses, but 500 horses, for, yeah. you know, carrying it. And three ships. As well, mm, three cutters, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because they used to actually sort of subcontract some of their work out to other gangs. Like there's, there's something here about the Wingham gangs who joined forces, and uh, but uh, they were doing an operation on Sandwich Bay, but they decided to leave um, um, and premature and prematurely with their horses. See, for, but for those obviously that don't know what a cutter ship looks like, um, isn't the Cutty Sark in Greenwich a cutter yes that's a t well it's a, a clipper t- yeah t- sh- yeah so you're looking at a ship roughly about that size mm. yeah but when this gang actually decided to leave early uh the uh the uh, hankshaw gang actually set upon them so there was a bit of a sword fight and dueling going on so uh you know there's definitely people not to be messed with and if you did go into sort of like a contract with them and to help them out you better be on your guard. <laughs> yeah, you don't double cross. There's no double crossing scenarios going on here. Now the Hawkehurst gang in that particular instant did lead, did win that they took forty horses belonging to the other gang. So they that's well, um, you absolutely. Know. I'm, I I I've been going on a little bit into your research, but um, in 1746, they actually the Hawkehurst group or gang teamed up with Wingham gangs yeah that's what we just um, and obviously they joined forces to take off 11 and a half tons of tea mm-hmm. off of a ship um and obviously yeah it, it backfired a bit and there was a bit of like arguing and warfare going on but yeah it, it, the, the sheer school of them i mean yeah 11 and a half tons of tea it's the sheer scale of the operation. It's, it's phenomenal when you think about it, you know. I mean, and also, if they had got their contraband taken by the customs, they had no qualms about taking it back. Oh, no. Yeah. They would just go down the customs house, wouldn't they, and take it back, lay yeah. siege to the place. Yeah, in 1748, one of the gangs bought a large cargo of brandy, tea and rum over. A customs cutter captured and seized the, the cargo... And the goods were stored in the customs house in Paul in Dorset. Now, some of the smugglers escaped, contacted the gang, who then went to the customs house and basically went, give us our stuff, right? They did. Yeah. They rescued their stuff. Obviously, the customs officers weren't very happy with this, offered a large reward for the, the recovery. So you could hear the wrangling going on, do you know what I mean? Oh, we've just had our stuff nicked, mates. Right, where, they, where did they take it? They took it to Paul. So the gang go down to Paul, take it back. The customers are like, we're not having that, so we'll put out a big reward for this. Now, they, they did actually end up arresting a member of the gang 
purely on this informers. Was the, this was from the Diamond Gang, wasn't it? Yeah, no, from one. His name was Diamond. Oh, okay. Yeah, one member of the gang, Diamond, um, was arrested and jailed at Chichester. So, you know, this is a massive area you're talking about. Another member of the gang, Chater, was offered an alibi for Diamond, but unfortunately, while he was doing that, a customs officer named Galley was seen in a local pub by an informer and told the gang. The gang thought that Chater was informing on them, which he wasn't. So, (laughs) oh, God, uh, the couple... Um, they, the gang then bought drinks for the couple they thought had informed on them and they woke up being whipped, tied to a horse until they were nearly dead. So it was, you know, oh, you can imagine the whole that, shenanigans that went on. That that just sounds like an 18th century version of Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> he said, she said, then I went over and... It does, doesn't it? It does. The gang... <laughs> thought that they had actually killed the customs officer galley and buried him but he wasn't dead he was actually still alive they kept chater chained in the shed for a few more days and decided to kill him (laughs) this is just absolutely crazy when you think about it and in the end what they did was they threw him down a well and then stoned him until he was dead so like yeah just for good measure (laughs) yeah just for good measure now the, bo- the bottom line is, I think, that shows the brutality of this gang and the links they will go to to protect their operations. Because mm. you're actually sort of starting to see a sort of like... that They operated in a big area. Yeah. yeah. Because you've got Sandwich in Kent, which is right sort of down the end, you know, sort of yeah. right down the end of the south, and then up to Paul in Dorset and up to Chichester. You know, that's a, that's a huge area Massive. they had they held sway over yeah massive but it was these two murders of the people that they thought were informers but weren't that actually started to turn the tide they were previously looked on the whole gang was previously looked at as almost like a robin hood kind of characters steal from the rich (laughs) to give to the poor kind of scenario but because of the way that this particular situation worked out and the two innocent people that weren't informers got killed it kind of started to turn the tide against the smugglers in regards to public opinion. So people were like started going, well, hang on, this has gone too far now. It's all well and good having cheap goods off them, but when you're starting to kill innocent people, it takes it a step too far. Yeah. Now, um, Arthur Gray, one of the smugglers, was actually executed for the murder of Thomas Carswell in 1748. So they didn't get away um, scot-free on... or oh, one person didn't get away scot-free. Talk about <laughs> scapegoated there, I feel. Or he one out of 500, I yeah. suppose, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he would have been thrown under the bus if buses were invented then. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. He was actually um, hung for that. So, you know, when you think about it, public opinion starting to turn against the brutality of this mm. particular gang. Now, there's a very famous battle... Um, that took place between villagers and the smuggling gang in particular, um, which is the Battle of Goudhurst. Goudhurst, is it said like that? Goudhurst, yeah. As I say, it's, sort of, it's not a battle in the traditional sense, but, yeah, it would have been a sort of like a, a skirmish, but, uh, yeah. Uh, now, but the, the, the thing that's wrong with this is it was actually written 100 years after. So this is an oral tale that's been told for about 100 years, and then it finally got written down um, after the fact of, you know, so 100 years later, um, it got written down by a guy called Robert Baker. 
Um, now, his story is that the village of Goldhurst was actually terrorised by the Hawkehurst gang. So they all got together, basically, and one an old former soldier, one particular um, community member, uh, William Sturt, persuaded them to basically defend themselves against the gang. Um, now, obviously, the gang heard about this and thought, we ain't having that. So... Um, <laughs> threatened to actually attack the village and broil and eat the hearts of the defenders. Lovely. <laughs> Lovely. Um, around... Now, this happened actually, like, on the 21st of April, around that date. They don't know the exact date, so this is quite relevant, really. We know we've only just passed that date, haven't we? Well, yeah, not, not long past. A no, couple not, of weeks or so. I know, not long past, so I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I've lost track of days. <laughs> <laughs> it could be that day today, to be fair. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Um, a number of the gang rode past the town, and there was an inn called the Goulthurst Inn, and they started just shooting at it, basically, because they were a bit, you know, intimidating, trying to intimidate the villagers. But Sturt was already aware of this, so you can see there's an informal situation going on, all the gang's coming, quick, take position. Yeah, yeah. And he'd actually placed men as snipers in upstairs windows and the church tower who returned fire. The gang went, oh, my God, they're firing on us, and went, we, ain't, we, we just were doing this just to intimidate you. We weren't here in full, so we're going to go away <laughs> again. Um, and, but its leaders killed George Kingsmill and another smuggler named Willett. Right? Woohoo! Routed, <laughs> routed the smugglers. Well, I think William Sturt must have been the saviour of the village. Uh, definitely, his uh, military uh, background would have come in handy there, because he, you know, he has sort of uh, thought about this and uh, to uh, certainly to place snipers in the church tower and stuff like that. I, yeah. I think what what really happened um, is, I mean, I've seen it on TV already, so it must be true. Uh, <laughs> what what actually happened? The gangs surrounded the the. The pub basically um and started shooting at it and there was a bloke inside that said hang on a minute i'm just finishing my weetabix and they all looked at each other and said they've had their weetabix and run away <laughs> very funny very funny and if you want to know about that then you're going to have to go back and listen to last week's show <laughs> Now, it really portrays the villagers as being the goodies, doesn't it, this story? You know, overcoming the nasty, naughty smugglers, you know, and the protection racket that they've got going Well, there is a sense of that, isn't there? You know, sort of, you know, good triumphs over evil, isn't it? But the the head of the customs service in Kent, Mr John Collier, in 1747, kind of doesn't really agree with this he actually replied some complaints have been made of their behavior which is not on the whole strictly justified effectively wood is informing collier that villagers are acting as vigilantes and bounty hunters and collier is actually agreeing that they may have gone too far all right Mm-hmm. I'll still go to where you're big. Maybe so. Because the 1736 Indemnity Act and 1746 Smuggling Act actually offered huge rewards up for the smugglers, you know, for the conviction of wanted smugglers. Mm-hmm. So if you want to earn money, one way of getting quite a nice bunce is to actually get a smuggler, you know. Yeah. Yeah, because on a smuggler. Like- yeah, like a sort of like a bounty hunter. 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and specialising in smugglers because, yeah, because what we've sort of found out so far, I mean, large communities, so everyone would have known who these people were. So there must have been a huge temptation to be shocked to the authorities for certain people, especially if these rewards were starting to be handed out. Yeah. They actually, the village actually claimed £150 reward for the killing of Kingsmere and Woollard. So did they provoke for a bounty is is the question on this farm. It's a possibility. They lured them in. Considering this was written... 100 years after the event as well, that does sort of suggest that some of it could have actually been made up and just to fill in the gaps if there were any. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, following that, in 1749, actually, um, 26 members of the gang were executed um, for smuggling and that basically was a bit of a... Um, downturn for the smuggling gang in that area things got it just sounds like things got out of hand and got nasty and Mm. uh the customs you know were very on top of this they they really did sort of um start putting pressure on so it kind of was a little bit it got a little bit out of hand you know when you start thinking about it yeah sort of like the high water yeah yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it did. He made the five o'clock news in the afternoon. <laughs> <coughs> Dong. It was on the Kent. He was in the Kentish Post in 1747 on the 22nd of April. Shall, shall I read it? Yeah, go for it. Go on. Uh, Fifteen smugglers went to Goldhurst, all armed with pistols and something, and swore they would fire the town. The people, having notice of it, got all armed and received their first fire, but none were hurt. They fired at the smugglers and shot two through their heads, whereupon the offers made off. Sorry, the others made off. (laughs) Oh, dear. The Kentish Post, that was, everybody. If you're interested, go and find that. So, yeah, it was quite interesting. But, again... Because of the the strength of the gang, there's loads of places that are connected to this particular gang in in question, and a lot of legends surrounding it. None of them seem to back up. You know, I'm not saying the places weren't involved in in the contraband movement or the gang themselves, but some of them, in regards to the paranormal perspective on it, you know, like ghost stories and things we go out looking for nowadays don't seem to be backed up by the history, Um, and that's the main problem, isn't it, with this? Well, yeah, I mean, it it is fascinating when you um, get a report back from a paranormal team and they've gone out and investigated it and come back with the same ghost story that was told by the smugglers. And it's like, well, they, they just told you that just to keep you away. So... Is it a case of them making it, making the facts fit? What well, if they get activity? That is exactly. This is yeah. the problem I have with a lot of these stories. I mean, the Highgate House, um, not the one in London, but the one down in um, Hastings, was supposed to be a hiding place for contraband, um, mm. and it's supposed to have. Again, we've got tunnels linking it to different locations um, on that. It's widely stated that the Oak and Ivy Inn was headquarters of the Hawkehurst gang, but the deeds of the pub don't bear this out. It was not licensed as an inn or alehouse mm. before the mid-19th century, but the pub itself says the graffiti is still scrawled on the beams in the loft from the Hawkehurst gang. So 
where's the truth in that? You know, um, who knows, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Overlaid and overlaid, you know, sort of people say, well, it's a pub now, it must have been a pub back then, and yeah. It just, everything gets lost, doesn't it, in translation, really. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, the anecdotal story, which is sort of, you know, a lot of time, a lot of sort of paranormal investigation teams and stuff, and that's all they have to go on, isn't it? Yeah, but when you start researching stuff like this, you mm. can't find any, you know, very verified facts. Um, it becomes very um, it, it's just an account it's just a story you know yeah. you can't well, take that's it, it. That. I mean, we've sort of encountered that at another location that we was trying to look into um, the, the owners said that there's loads of history online about it but we've actually looked into it and the only history to can find is stated from the owners anyway. Yeah. And you yeah. can't actually trace any of that back further than, you know, what they've reported already. So, you know, wh- where do these stories come from? Well, you go you to know. witness reports, but when you find the witness reports are really good friends with the people that are now telling the story and there's exactly. no previous information. And when you start looking into the history of the location in regards to, um, you know, records and stuff like that there's nothing and you you start to have to question it you have to question mm. that you know exactly and and i think that's where many investigators fall foul because you know they do do take it at face value they do a quick google search and go oh yeah that's the history but they don't actually look at where that history information come from in the first place yeah you've got to as you due diligence you've got to try and trace it back to source yeah very much and so. see if they're credible. Definitely. You know, I mean, as hard as it is at times, but that is the role. If you want to call yourself an investigator, that is what an investigator does. It is. Yeah. That is the the point of it all, really. And you know, we see it quite a lot. You know, we see we see this quite a lot, and in particularly, it came up very very prevalent in regards to smuggling legends and tales. Yeah. Um, you know, like I've said. The whole tourist industry has been built on smugglers' tales in, in around the coast. It's a very big pull for people. It's a smugglers, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And that whole romanticised image we've got of smuggling, um, a whole tourist industry is built up and there are tales and stories. And where do they come from, these stories? You have to look at the history to see if it backs it up. In regards to the oak and ivy, it doesn't bear out. What do I know? Do you know what I mean? I haven't gone up and looked at the beams um, that are on there. I don't know. No. What, I don't know what that pub was before you... it was a pub. It could have been a, um, a. It could have been anything. It could have just been a house that they used. You yeah. know, um, for all I know. But considering it's supposed to be the headquarters of the Hawkehurst gang, it doesn't kind of bear it out. But. That's a whole different historical research that would have to be undertaken to find out if that is. Um, yeah, because you know, I've only I've only heard that the deeds don't correspond with the time that the the game was around, so they couldn't possibly have used it um, as a H, HQ. It's it's almost like the the whole legend of Robin Hood and the Robin Hood tree yes. in Sherwood Forest. You go there looking at mm. this massive big tree that's held up because it's so old that it's held up. But then if you take into consideration how old that tree is, it would have just been a little twig sticking out of the ground when Robert Lockstead was around, you know, and it it just couldn't possibly be used for what the legend says. Yeah. 
and this is the thing, isn't it? Use your common sense. You mm. know, the tree back mm. then days was not going to be the tree you're looking at today. No, no, definitely because not. Because of growth, no. do you know what I mean? I mean, this is another one. The Queen's Inn is supposed to be um, another place that was frequented by the Hawkehurst gang. And a pair of ghostly legs are sometimes seen from the chimney place. You know, oh, right. uh, the, you know, protruding from the chimney place. And it's said, the ghost story of this one, is that it belonged to a long-dead smuggler who suffocated whilst hiding from the... Cus- he didn't hide very well if his legs are protruding, right? No, no. <laughs> it's almost like playing hide-and-seek and having your feet poking out of the curtains, isn't it? And again, I've heard similar <laughs> stories to that before from other sort of pubs and locations of, uh, you know, sort of people expiring in chimneys. They certainly would have been a hiding place and perhaps, yeah, people would have sort of tried to climb up them. But, yeah, you can see where these stories come from. Maybe it, was the, maybe it was the ghost of Dim Jim and he hid there when the fire was lit. <laughs> yeah, but I also think you're, you're missing a whole section of history regarding chimneys and people going up chimneys in that respect. Uh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean... They used to use children to go and clear the chimneys. Chimney sweeps yes, used to go yeah. up there. People used to do um, priest holes in chimney breasts. Do you know mm. what I mean? There's a whole... Well, that's it. I mean, when when people were burgled, they used to send kids down chimneys and mm. stuff mm. like that to break in and then open the front door for the burglar. I know, but because you've got this link with the Hulkhurst gang and it's very famous in that area, it's very easy to jump to that assumption. Yeah. It's a dead yeah. smuggler, you know, who was suffocated whilst trying to hide from the customs offices. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um I don't think that it... I don't know. What do I know, right? Well, I mean, there is definitely other um, scenarios that it could have been that can explain the two legs in the chimney. But as you said, you know, because it's attached to the Hawkehurst gang, that many people will jump to that conclusion. I mean, even if there's a paranormal investigation team going down there and using... um, like the ghost, uh, the ghost box, for example, mm. you know, they'll sit there and they might get a word through. They'll they'll link it to the Hawkehurst gang as opposed to anything else. Well, yeah, go. because you've got your template there to put it onto. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. I mean, another really famous inn in that area is the Mermaid Inn. Now, we, as a paranormal team, paranormal team, paranormal people, um, probably know the Mermaid Inn from Most Haunted. They investigated it in 2002. They only captured orbs, everybody. But they were there investigating it. Now, again, when you look into this, they were supposed to drink there, the Hawkehurst gang. It's it, Again, this was touted on the show. It's been, you know, linked to that. And this is supposed to be quite an active place. See, I, I, don't, I mean, OK, they call orbs. That just means they've just got a dodgy cameraman. Oh, it's quite dusty. If he had the right cameras, he could have eliminated the orbs. Um, they're they're not paranormal. I, I don't believe in them at all. No, I know. I know. It but... is a is a camera phenomena, not a paranormal one. I I tend to agree with you on that point. But again, yeah. the mermaid and didn't mention orbs again. Oh. Just, I'm going to move on because the, the, a lot of the places we're talking about are grade two listed buildings they're very yeah. Um, yeah. historical in their own right do you know what I mean they look the part they've got the history they've got the age they, they've got the feel I mean um, mm. 
in regards to the Mermaid Inn, if you go into the into the actual bar itself, you can imagine the 1700s, hundreds. You know what I mean? Because of the way the bar is, it's it's mm-hmm. got that age to it. Do you know what I mean? So you can understand why ghost stories build up around these places. Um, now, Mermaid Inn doesn't actually say that the, any members of the gang haunt there but they do say that the ghost of a woman that's supposed to be there is supposed to be the wife of one of the Hawkehurst gang members Mr George Gray whether that's true or not who knows but they do have regular activity allegedly at I'm going to say allegedly because I have not experienced it myself but people are you know have reported having experiences at the Mermaid Inn quite extensively yeah I mean I I think when it's my time to go I'm, I'm going to be one of these spirits and just to prove to everyone that there is life after death. And, I mean, in, in your research, the first one says that um, people have encountered a ghoul run, rampaging in bedrooms. I know. That's so a gentleman closed perching on the edge of the guest's bed. Now, I'm going to be doing all that. I'm, I'm going to be throwing the wardrobes about and everything. Or rattling chains and, and appearing yeah, in mirrors. and going, you? ooh, like that. <laughs> and uh, waking people up, jumping on the bed, and, yeah, I'll, I'll be doing all that sort of stuff, Dra- you... and dragging you up the walls and things. Great. Entity style. Oh, Entity I'll go style. for it. Go go for it. I do think, just, though, when you're in a historic proof. building, you've got psychological triggers that may make you feel that there's something more going on. I mean, you know, they're rickety, I say rickety, they're creaky old buildings, aren't they, generally? Um, icy cold during the yeah. night, that's not uncommon because heating systems are usually um, not the best in those kind yeah. of places. They're usually hard to heat because the, the age of the building. Um, strange noises could be the settling of an old building, you don't know. Uncomfortable atmosphere, well... Let's be honest. You're in an old building. Sometimes you're going to of get course. a little bit freaked See, out. In, in the like, in the location that I'm going to haunt, I'm going to rip the radiators off the wall, so you can quite easily say that it wasn't the radiator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but how many times have you sort of been out and about? And I'm not, and I know a lot of them sort of like paranormal investigators. You know, they sort of just come across a random building, and because it looks old, and they always say, "Oh, I'd love to investigate that." You think, well, why? You don't know nothing about it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but it's just the uh, allure of the building, the way it looks and stuff. So yeah, look. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I can understand that. But sometimes people are drawn to those type of buildings. I mean, I like them, and I would do an investigation in them, knowing nothing about it. Mm. And then if I experience anything, I could take that away, research the building, and go. Well, actually, yeah, that ties in with what I've actually experienced. Yeah. yeah. And right. for me, that that sort of validates my experience. Um, but I would still go back to see whether or not I can recreate it and look at things logically to see what I experienced, whether or not it was genuinely paranormal activity or was it, I don't know, as you said, the pipes cooling down or the wood, mm. you know, whether the the um, environment and the weather sort of um, made the wood swell or whatever. All I know, these places make, with the ghost stories linked to them as well, it makes the perfect paranormal investigation area. Now, we couldn't go much further in this discussion regarding smugglers without referencing Jamaica Inn. And now, I didn't even want to start looking at this topic because I know two people that know 
heck of a lot more than I do. Um, so please welcome to the show, Karen Bezen and CJ Simmons, Colin Simmons. Hi, guys. How are you? Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. Oh, you're very, very <laughs> welcome. Thank you. <laughs> now, these guys um, run the paranormal side of the Jamaica Inn, but they're also research. Now, when I talk about researching, this is the in-depth research that needs to be done on locations. Um, so they can back up maybe what they find paranormally with historical facts. You know, it's a two-way street. We've talked about this quite a lot over the time. So, Karen, you are... The, are you the main researcher or is it CJ these days? Because you've both done a heck of a lot of work on this, haven't you? It's Corinne that does the main research, and be quite honest, it's her passion. Last <laughs> <laughs> year, I've had a compliment after all these years. <laughs> What's he after, Corinne? That's what I'm yeah. going <laughs> A little couple more weeks, peace and quiet, that'll do me. Really well. <laughs> Stir crazy in lockdown. <laughs> but you see, Colin is very clever and he remembers a lot of history, even though he pretends he detests it. Yeah, ish. <sighs> history is good in its place in the past. Just put it that way. Blasphemer. <laughs> now, Jamaica Inn is in the UK probably the best known location. It, it's got the Smugglers Museum there anyway, but it's also one of the, it's so iconic, isn't it, Jamaica Inn, mainly because of Daphne du Maurier writing the book on it. Yeah. How true is it that smugglers were there at the inn? Colin, do you want to go? Well, I mean, there would have been, and it would have been used as smugglers, uh, as a smuggling point. But what you've got to look at with smuggling and around that area, they would have had many different areas they would have gone to. There would have been inns and places on the coastline they would have gone to. There would have been uh, caches up on the moor, so they would use um, trading inns and coaching inns along the route. So really, smuggling, it, it, it was all over. It's not really located to one specific spot, I shouldn't imagine. But if I'm incorrect on that, I'm pretty sure Corinne will... Uh, correct me on that but it's not it's it's not isolated it's, it's not just in one area it goes all around so um there were smuggling gangs all over the place to be quite honest it's not that near to the coast is it jamaica in no no it's right in the middle so why you know when you think about it um a smuggler they smuggled the contraband so they brought it in it would have been quite some quite a track to bring it from the coastline all the way up to the Jamaica end. So there would have been other areas that they would have called in first, but it would have been probably a meeting place for them at the end of the day. They would have come together there. They would have planned their routes more than probably uh, because it's right in the middle, so you've got both coastlines. Yeah, I sort of get the idea that, yeah, it's more of a waylay point, as you said, Colin, you know, they're sort of distributing the contraband and that just would have been a place they would have stopped off as part of their route inland. But, yeah, that is very interesting. Karen? One of the things oh. I think you need to... <laughs> sorry. 
because she's got me going now. Well, <laughs> one of the things you have to remember as well is a place, Bodmin Jail. It's not that far from Jamaica Inn. So why would a smuggler and smugglers want to route around that area, being so close to Bodmin Jail, where the peelers would have been? So really, they would have skirted it. I would say more along the lines it was, a, uh, as you said, a waypoint meeting area. But who knows? Kerry. <laughs> Quick getting first. During our research, um, if you know the layout of the Jamaica Inn um, and you go up the stairs to what we call the old block, the original building, and you take a left and a direct right, there's a square window and there's a fascinating folklore that a candle would be lit, which would shine over the cross the moor and the big hill they call Brown Willie to let them know if it, the coast was clear. I don't know if it was on, off, whatever, but as Colin said, a meeting place, but you also have to remember Bobman Moor, as it was, it was a vast area, you know, considering the size of Cornwall. There were only so many tracks and roads because there was a tarmac. You know, and if you had a cart laden with goods, it had to go over a good surface so it didn't get stuck, especially in the winter. So, Bobman, Jamaica Inn, Launceston, Oakhampton, that's how it went up. Now, the trading routes, the coaches, contraband was sneaked into items. Now, Colin can tell you a fascinating story about fruit at the Jamaica Inn and one concept of how it got its name and not by the governors of Jamaica from the Trelawney family. Colin? Well, it's it, it mainly, it's up on the uh, ghost hunting page, the Jamaica Inn ghost hunting page. Uh, I believe an author um, actually put it up. His belief was that the Jamaica Inn wasn't called the Jamaica Inn. It was called the Jam Maker Inn because uh, a story went that smugglers came along with, and let's be quite honest, back in the day, fruit was quite sought after. So they brought in a lot of uh, strawberries and fruit, took it to the Jamaica Inn. Um, they were there. The peelers came up unexpectedly, so the landlord apparently put the fruit, the contraband, into big barrels and left it in the barrels. And the peelers stayed there. I don't know if it was a few nights or whatever, because I haven't read it for a while. It's, it's up on there. And uh, when they went back, when the peelers went and they did their examination of the Jamaica Inn, which I presume what they were there for, they stumbled across it, but they couldn't do the landlord at the time because the fruit had purified. So it became a jam, and they've never had jam at that time. So basically they couldn't be done for smuggling because the actual fruit fermented and fermented in the barrels. Now, if you actually go onto the uh, Jamaica Inn Ghost Hunting page of the visitors' posts, you'll be able to see the, the more in uh, detailed account that the person had put out. But no specific proof of that. That was what was put up on there. But I did find it really, really interesting to say, you know, 
could there be? Because there's always a basis of truth in folklore. It always starts with something. So mm. did something that actually <clears throat> did happen? Probably, but quite in all fairness, it could have happened. Has that ever come to light within the paranormal investigations that have been well, going on? Well, strangely enough, Paul, um, we were doing an investigation one day. We were up in room, I think, the new room that's just been done, Corinne, room four? Three. Or, three. Uh, room three. When it's just been uh, renovated, that room. But uh, about a year ago, um, we I had a, a number of guests up there, and we were talking, and I was telling them about this story and said, go and have a because it is. I said, try out, because they weren't getting no activity. I said, try out calling out for and talking about the jam maker in. So they did. And when they did, they had all sorts of things happen in the room. But it only happened once. It hadn't happened since. And we have actually tried it with other groups. But nothing's ever happened. But in that particular time, when we were talking about it in the room, Everything went absolutely haywire. We, we were all taken back by it. <laughs> but again, it, it's it's quite strange. Yeah. The other thing you have to remember at the height of the smuggling, so from 1750 when the Jamaica Inn was called the New Inn, to around about 1778 when they started building, you know, the annex, the stable block, etc. The inn was run by a chap called John Broad. Now, his brother, James, took over around about 1780, something like that. And what I don't understand, by then, they didn't just um, rent for a 99-year lease from the Trelawney family a little inn. There was farmland, there were barns, you know. It it was a big undertaking. So why would John Broad leave there to go to a tiny little pub in the nearest village at Altrinum? Because there's this rumour, we can't find if it's fat, but the brother was supposed to be, this John was supposed to be accused of murder. I can find nothing to corroborate it, you know, I'm... I don't know if it's true or not, but whenever we do experiments paranormal-wise and accuse John of this, we seem to get a reaction from the one that we think's there, the big man, James Broad. And it's, it's fascinating, but how lucky are we to carry on this research to see if we can collaborate any of this? Exactly. But you have to be careful to not turn a presumption into a fact. Yes, thank yeah. you. Yeah, and, you know, those two main characters, and then when James died by 1801, his wife carried on. Both brothers married two sisters. Oh. It's, it's the Glanvilles. You know, it's, 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 I think it's such a fabulous story. But they would have been the main characters to do with the smuggling around there. And also you have to remember the gangs. Corinne, that's if the smuggling was there, because we have to be honest, we've got no evidence whatsoever that there was actual smuggling taking place at the inn. That came about through the Daphne de Maurier book yeah. and her writings. But you, in all fairness, it goes back to there would have probably been smuggling going on 
and in and around that area, to be quite honest with well, you. Can I quote a fact that I only found today that um, 1749, 30,000 30, gallons of French brandy were smuggled from Newquay to Plymouth. So it would have gone along that trade route. And along the way, everyone was in on buying it. As Colin said, the gentry, some of the revenue men or custom men, whichever you want to call them, were bribed. You know, it was a huge market. Yeah. And that was every month. One thing, a quarter of the tea from the country was smuggled in. Yeah. You know, I think we have no idea of the enormity of this trade. They go on about drugs trades now, but that was huge. And everyone would have benefited in the community because they, at the end of the day, they would have been getting uh, cheaper goods and everyone would have been involved in it. This is what a lot of people sort of seem to miss. You know, we tend to look at it more from modern eyes where smuggling is sort of, you know, we just tend to put it to, to see the drug trade now and stuff like that, and that is sort of like scammed upon, you know, it is looked upon as quite low. But back then, no, yes. was the, you know, everyone would have been involved. But you only have to look Even at some of the goods. Farmers. Yeah, you only have to look at some of the goods that were coming through, um, through the smugglers. Yeah. It's not, I mean, yes, there was the brandies and, you know, the rums and stuff like that, but you also had, like, lace and wool and yeah. um, tea and coffee, you know, not coffee, but, you know, those those things. Mm. So these are everyday commodities, aren't they? You think tea is an everyday commodity. And like you say, the amount yeah. that's being bought in. It was interesting what you're saying about the jam making because um, it's documented that if the customs men went onto a ship before it left port over in France, they would do something called barrel dipping to see to make sure the depth of the barrel was what it was supposed to be, to make sure that it hadn't been partitioned halfway through to store contraband <laughs> halfway through, yeah. which we talked about earlier in the show. So these things were these these methods of transporting goods were well known that you know that came in because this method was used to to get the goods over. But it was a huge, huge undertaking and that's one thing that um surprised me. Because in, you've, it's that romanticised vision, isn't it, of smuggling? Um, very much so. And also, um, the other thing we've, we've talked about earlier on was the caves. You know, very rarely were the caves used. It was like barns of farmers or hidden in the shifting sands and stuff like that. Because when you think about it logically, caves are not the safest place to hide dry goods, you know, that you don't want to get wet or, you know, to transport them. There are, there are places, but it's more yeah. unlikely than likely. Um, and the undertaking was hundreds of people involved in this. It was exactly. You had farmers that craftily would send down their donkeys to collect sand to put on their fields, fields as manure. Now, it was also a great cover when a ship would sneak in. The same donkeys and the farmers' men would go down to help with loading the goods up off the beach. They created special sloping paths, especially for the donkeys. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Colin's passion is the big difference between, you know what, if you want to say about that, Colin. Yeah, Colin, bring that in. But basically, you've got to look at what a smuggler was. And you know they, you know they did range. You did have gentry that were mainly the ones that were in charge. They would take a bribe, but the ones that did the work on the floor, 
basically did the smuggling, did the fetching, did the carrying, uh, did the hiding. They were just the common folk around there. Now, what people don't, well, they should realise, and if you were down in Cornwall, they will know, that Bodmin Moor is covered with pits, uh, which is tin mines. And there was lots of tin mines. So there was lots of tin miners down there. Now, this is where I think the difference between a smuggler and a wrecker comes in. Because people refer to a wrecker as a smuggler, and they're not. As I was saying before, they are poles apart. Wrecker, in my opinion, and from what I about, is basically a tin miner. If a ship was wrecked, these people were so poor that they would just literally run down if they got whiff of a ship being wrecked and grab, because wood was a commodity to them at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Was a commodity. Sales would have been a blanket to keep you warm. Mm, no, yeah. miners lived very um, in stone cold buildings around. Some of them probably lived on the mine sites themselves, and the gentry didn't really care for them very much because they were just labour at the end of the day and paid pittance. So yeah, um, that's where I think the 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 wrecking side of it came because if you did go down to the coastal towns. And you went down there and said to them, oh, you know, this town was born on wrecking. They, a lot of them, the old ones, would literally shoo you out of the, <laughs> of the books because they were never known as wreckers. And they would tell you the wreckers came from inland. And inland was where the tin miners were. And you also got to think of when a ship was wrecked, whether it was lit. Uh, literally or deliberately or, or what really, or even by accident, the company would probably employ somebody to go down there and actually strip the ship. Hence the terminology, wrecking a ship. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is you, you can't legally own goods from a wrecked ship if there's one member of the crew still alive. Exactly. So there, there have been accounts, or there were stories, I'm going to say stories because I didn't find any true accounts, of people, you know, they, they're finding up washed up sailors that got wrecked and were actually killing them because they wanted the goods. That's how desperate. And I think you also have to be very contextual in time of how desperate people were in those days. You know, we, we have a very romanticised view of, like, the 1700s, 1800s, and it was yeah. actually, for the common folk, it was very desperate times. Excise was off through the roof. You know, that's why these things happened. I, I found a fantastic story this morning of an old reverend that was given the last rites to um, an old chap, and he said, you don't remember me. And he said, why? He said, many years ago, he said, you walked along a coastal path. He said, you said, good evening. And the Reverend said, yeah. He said, I couldn't decide whether to take the long route or the short route home, but I took the long one. He said it was very wise because we had a delivery. And if you'd taken the short route, you'd have been thrown over the cliffs. Mm -hmm. True, true story. 
But also, there's there's no there is no evidence to suggest that people would deliberately go down on top of the cliffs or the mountains with a lantern to try and wreck a ship deliberately. There's just no evidence of it whatsoever. And you can you can search the internet, you know, the resource. There is just nothing of it. There was only one account of one person ever being found guilty and caught, and that was the little boy. And Corinne's going to go mental with me because I've forgotten his name again. William Purse. <laughs> That's it, and- William. And he was caught. Um, apparently, it's the only known documentation of somebody being done for wrecking down in Cornwall. This is where, now, though, but I'm just but this, this is where, though, the wrecking and the smuggling get confused, isn't it? Because smugglers yeah. used to signal the ships for when it was safe yeah. for them to go out or come closer or whatever. And this is where it gets confused because that is a, th- a, a technique smugglers use to communicate with the ship coming in with the smuggled goods for them to come in. So, like you say, it's like the, this is where the terminology between wreckers and smuggling gets confused, mm. and um, it it all these tales start interweaving and, and getting confused, mm. and people don't look into the history, and they use those terminologies um, into interchangeable. Now, going back to um, Jamaica, here, they have got the Smugglers Museum there, haven't they? What kind of artifacts are in there? We, we've got many different artefacts in there. I've got to be quite honest. Uh, when you go in there and you look at the cabinets and you see how ingeniously they were at trying to conceal, I mean, we've even got a wooden leg down there where it was hollowed out, where somebody would smuggle probably tobacco in. Uh, there, it, it goes throughout the ages. There's lots of artefacts there that that show you in cans, oil cans, um, even in um, coming up into more modern times with uh, petrol uh, cans and how they would put it in petrol cans. Um, but the, 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 the leg and the wooden, hollowing out a wooden piece of wood that they would use for something else and a little... You lift up a, a, a lever and it's all hollow, and that's where they would put all the, the stuff in. But one of the stuff that they did uh, do, and it was the smaller things, probably the wooden legs and the stuff like that, is the opium. Mm-hmm. Opium was also right. smuggled and brought in because that was widely used back in the day. So the smaller little containers that they do, it was just ingenious how they came up with the ideas to get this stuff in and get it past, like modern day, the customs, really, at the end of the day. Um, Books hollowed out with jewellery in. Um, Potatoes hollowed out and (laughs) items put inside. You know, sometimes myself and Colin, we forget because we're so used to being there and, you know, you walk into the museum and you think, oh, my God, why haven't I seen that? before because you, you you just totally ignore the vast array that's there and lately it's starting to be changed over and more things added and things changed around you know to keep the interest of the museum and yeah, I you know I looked back and I didn't realize the smuggling the early smuggling went on from um I think it I think it was from 
eight hundreds onwards. You know, it's it's been part and parcel of of life. And then, of course, when the king would put taxes on to pay for the wars, smuggling increased. And at the height of the seventeen hundreds and the early eighteen hundreds, you had the French wars. Hence, why uh, Sir William Peel, he, I think it was, was it eighteen forty one. He changed the import duties, and then there was no need to smuggle the tea, the brandy, that sort of thing. It, it's, it's, it's a fascinating read, you know, and we forget how fabulous our UK history is yeah. at times. Yeah. Oh, well, one of the things in relating to smuggling you need to remember as well is right up until this present day, it's still going on down there. There is still smuggling going on to this day. Because there are lots of things that are still coming in that people don't want to know about. Uh, you go on now, and if you read the news, you see like bales suddenly appearing in the sea. All right, it's all drugs, but the smuggling is still continuing to this day. And I wouldn't be as surprised if some of them don't even use some of the old smuggling caves, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> Along the Cornish lines, they'd probably kill for that. But, you know, you, you just don't know. In fact, they. <laughs> That there was an actual coast guard driving past, or uh, you know, going past on their patrols, and they came across a bale. And when they followed it, it went up onto the shore, and there must have been about, I think there was about ten bales, and that was marijuana. So the <laughs> <laughs> whereabouts was no. that, Colin? <laughs> yeah, that must be some party afterwards. <laughs> But it is, the, the coastline down that way is so rugged and, and I don't think you can yeah. discount um, how hostile, actually, that whole area is around Jamaica in and, and, you know, the Devon and Cornwall coasts are uh, very, very hostile environments for sailors um, to, to navigate. Um, and yeah. they would be incredibly difficult for the preventatives or the customs men to actually police. So it was like an ideal breeding ground for that trade really wasn't it or isn't it even they get you 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 read about um there was a, a thing this morning about someone having their head bashed in you know oh, you need yeah, to read yeah. that story oh god <laughs> there was an altercation between like the customs and the smugglers and the guy got shot in the head and two spoonfuls of brains had come out and he actually said <laughs> yeah just two and the smugglers were sort of saying we would be very like um, pleased basically if um, you could save him because then they wouldn't get done for murder do you know what I mean yeah. Yeah. Know, but two spoonfuls of brains came out so the chances are they weren't going to be able to save him what with the medical knowledge back in those <laughs> days but it was like they would be very gratified if they could save him you know <laughs> I was like chuckling away at the language and I thought <laughs> there was a report in a newspaper that uh, Corinne had sent me. And I was sitting there thinking, you wouldn't get that kind of reporting now, would you? <laughs> <laughs> that honesty. The language, is, yeah. the yeah. language is so different. And that's one of the joys of reading these historic accounts. It's just some oh. of the language they use. It's it, fascinating. Yeah. And, I mean, at the time, it's most important uh, when you're talking about it, and, and especially going back to the smuggler side of it and the wrecker side of it, the history of it, is actually taking, finding the truth behind the folklore. Because wherever you go, there's always folklore, but with folklore, there's always an element or uh, a start of a truth. 
but it's just elaborated over the years. And, you know, from our perspective, Corinne's and mine, I mean, we're lucky to be able to be at the inn for about five years. In fact, we celebrated our five-year anniversary not so long ago before this virus comes through. Um, so, you know, what we've been doing is taking that folklore and finding out the facts behind it. And that's what makes the huge difference. Yes. It's because, you know, at the end of the day, there's always an element of truth where there's a folklore. Something It always started at some point. And it's finding that original point is where I think Corinne gets her fascination because that's the history part of it for her. Whereas for me, it's a, it's a case that, yeah, I like delving into it, but Corinne's the one that that mainly deals with the history. She got a better mind than what I've got. Don't tell her I said that mind. <laughs> we found this earlier in the show. We were talking about um, some of the myths and, and folklores that were spread by smugglers to keep away people that weren't. And a lot of folklore stories from the black shark to um, white lady ghosts um, and all sorts of other methods that were used by smugglers to keep the people not in the know away from that area at that particular <laughs> time. You know, the Hadley gang um, in Suffolk used phosphorus to, to, on the gown of a lady to walk around who was in on it to keep away the populace. <laughs> the black shuck down in the Devon Cornwall areas was used. It was already a folklore down there, but they used, employed that as a folklore mm-hmm. to keep people not in the know, um, in and away from the, the area. You know, we, we discussed those earlier in the show. So it just goes to show that some of the folklore has been well employed by, by certain members <laughs> of society. And you have to remember that people were illiterate. So if you had a small village and someone said there was a ghost over there and not to go there, they would be too scared to do it. Yeah. You know, today, I think we would have been running to it. But <laughs> yeah. Back in the day. Yeah, hundreds of ghost hunting teams are going to converge on that area, you know. Whereas back in the day, they were, they were superstitious and fearful people, you know, so they would stay in. And, you know, given the, the conditions they were living under and the hostility of the environment, you're not really well, likely yeah. to be out and about. But to, to reinforce it, they would spread these rumours of, of various supernatural, shall we say, um, happenings. Well, you think about it, and even that's where the witchcraft came into play as well, down there, Mm -hmm. because they would use that as of you don't want to go into them woods or that area there, it's cursed, being cursed by the old lady or the healer. 90% of the times they were healers, they were never black witches, Mm -hmm. but they would use anything and any methodology to scare off people or to put people off, and back in them days. It was rife that people would believe. Yes. And somebody said that there was a curse there. They wouldn't go anywhere near it. Nope. So there was lots of things, uh, elements that were used. But I also think that when you go down to Bodmin Moor, you'll see a lot of what they call witching stones, witching circles. I mean, they could well be witching circles, but they could also just be a decoy to say you don't want to go near that area because that's a witch's circle. Funny, you know? funny enough, when we were researching Launceston in the beginning, uh, we were looking at a double hanging in Launceston, 1821. And I've forgotten the name of this witch, but there was a local witch that cursed someone, and it was in the local papers. And it's like, you know, that was, this woman was believed as a witch. You know, 1821. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, they, they wouldn't cross her. 
just, you know, and you, you, you think, my God, people go on about the famous witch trials and everything. This still carried on. There was that woman that was tried as a witch during the Second World War. Helen This medium. Helen Duncan. Yeah, it's Helen Duncan, yeah. So they still had that in place, that law, that they could try her as a witch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, oh my God. God, think of all the old laws that are still active now. <laughs> on that note, we're going to wrap this up because we've come off the top. We're going to go off into a whole different topic if we carry on. Uh, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge regarding Jamaica in and the smuggling um, perspective of it and that it was more likely to be a, a distribution point more than um, anything else. Um, we'd love to have you back on another time to talk about this going to the witchcraft next time you come back on why not <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, a a that's a whole topic that's a whole topic sorry I diversed a little bit there with the witchcraft <laughs> but it was powerful of it so that's Colin's passion is that now we went down to a um, oh um, what was her name Alex at the antique place in oh, Cornwall right, right. and she had five original um, what were those? The the witching needles that they were poke, and she had them on. Cons- yeah. yeah, she had them on consignment to sell. I think they were like four or five hundred pounds. If I had had the money, the the history with these. Wow. You can imagine what I was like, Carrie. I was like drooling all. Over. I just wanted them, but there was just so much money to get. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Now, where can go? If I, I know we can't book um, for now, but it's going to open up at some point again for paranormal investigations. How can guys um, book um, anything to do with Jamaica in through you guys? Give yourselves a shout out. Well, currently at the moment, obviously, because the inn is completely closed down and we, we don't have an, um, a, a date when it's going to be uh, reopened. We're going from month to month. We've had to cancel now the, the, the May events and we'll look in May then at what happens for June. Uh, but if people keep an eye on the Jamaica Inn ghost hunting page, we'll always put up updates on there uh, of what's going on to the uh, public nights and some we've only got uh, I think three Korean private hires well obviously well, one's had to be cancelled yeah. uh, we've got another two coming up but we don't know so we're not cancelling them until we actually hear uh, from the inn on whether they're open because and not only that you've got to take into account when these places reopen and this goes for every hotel every uh, place because of the lockdown they're going to be inundated with people wanting to go down and, and get a break so if people keep an eye on our Jamaica Inn ghost hunting page, then they will find out when uh, we're going to be reopening for ghost hunts, public ones and private ones. And I just want to say, please do, for any location or any hotel or area of interest that you want to visit, please keep an eye out on that. These places are going to need your trade to help them post yeah post lockdown um so please keep an eye on those pages um and as soon as you can yes it's going to be busy yes it might be a little while before you get in but it's well worth it particularly somewhere like yeah. jamaica in 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 um in and, bodmin and following obviously the covid rules how frustrating for myself and colin to have a building that's closed we could go down there but it would be unethical at this time but Imagine having that historic location 
for a few oh, days, oh, just two of us. It's oh, <laughs> it would be amazing. But like you say, but like you say, at the moment we're all following the rules, um, yes. and you should follow the rules for your own safety as well as other people's safety. So stay home. There'll be a time we'll all come back. We'll all be allowed out back out in the field at some point, but. <laughs> Uh, for now, follow the rules, um, definitely. But keep an eye on those pages for any location you're interested in. Um, as soon as information is coming through and they're allowed to, under the government guidelines, they will allow you to start booking. So keep an eye on those pages. So it's on Facebook. It's the Jamaica Ghost Hunt Inn page, right? Yep. Keep an eye on that page. Thank you once again for joining us. And no doubt we'll get to speak to you very soon. Thank you for having us. As you can see, it's an absolutely fascinating um, topic. You know, when we start looking at smugglers, it's an absolutely fascinating topic from the how they actually did this, the, the size of the operation, the size of the gangs, what the contraband was, the reasons why, you know, some of the stories that are linked to it and the locations that are linked to it, um, you know, and how it, you know, like we've just had, Jamaica Inn isn't actually on the coast. It's like on the, the trade routes. So it was involved in the smuggling operation from possibly that angle um what do you think guys it's been an absolutely if amazing whistle stop tour of smugglers hasn't it it has and it's it's as you said it, as you like to say and it's it leads you down so many rabbit holes and it's just amazing it, the, the sheer magnitude of the operations is just amazing I like the way it sort of, you know, sort of put it into sort of more of a context. So, you know, because, you know, with, with smugglers' tales, and they are sort of romantic and fun to sort of look at, but, you know, I just hope we've managed to uh, impart some, uh, to give a bit more depth to the story. And, you know, and there were sort of real people involved in this, and it was not a sort of like a solo operation particularly. Uh, what I found out and during this show was uh, simply the uh, the scale of the operations that yeah. were going on oh totally totally and how organized it was mm. as well you know i think um there's a very definite difference between smuggling and wreckers you know uh, that yeah, has to yeah, be defined yeah. and how we've looked at you know ghost stories and folk tales that surround um, various locations and legends around the areas where smuggling was taking place some of it was um, utilized by the smugglers as stories to keep people away mm. um, and how you have to probably look into locations a lot deeper than necessarily thought to see the link between par alleged paranormal activity and the smugglers just because it's been banded as smugglers does not necessarily mean that it is anyway on that note guys we've actually come to the end of the show really yeah afraid so Okay, cool. Going quick, <laughs> didn't that, that it? Went, that, that did. It goes so quick when we do these. And there was so much more we found out that, you know, we've run out of time to bring to you guys, you know. Um, you go onto the internet, have a good look. There's some amazing historical sites out there detailing some of the other gangs that we haven't even had a chance to look at tonight. It's well worth a, a rabbit hole search for you guys out there. And we will be back with you next week bringing you another brilliant topic. And next week we're going out onto the high seas um, and we're going to delve into the realms of superstition and, um, you know, that kind of thing. Superstitions of the ancient mariners, aren't we, Paul and Richard? We are. It's going to be... Yes. Oh, you can have lots of impressions from Kerry of, ha-ha, uh, you salty sea dogs. <laughs> 
Or actually, as I prefer to do, is ooh ah which doesn't take yeah. place late anyway. <laughs> the Wurzels take to the high seas next week, so don't miss it. <laughs> yeah, we're, and we'll see if we can get Rich's advert into the mix as well. You never, never know. We might be able to link that somehow. I'm sure we will. <laughs> On that note, in the meantime, if you miss any of our past shows, you can go over to www.paranormalconcept.com where you'll find a link to all of our past shows as well as all of our blogs and links to our social media pages. So go over there if you're missing a little bit of our Paranormal Concept people. On that note, we'd like to bid you all a farewell. Until next week. Bye. Goodbye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.